0: Matthew chapter 4, we'll be reading from verses 12 to 25, also a copy should be printed for you in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. What you're about to hear now is the very word of God. Matthew chapter four, verses 12 through 25. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, in paralytics and he healed them and great crowds followed him from galilee and the decapolis and from jerusalem and judea and from beyond beyond the jordan praise god for his holy word i remember when i was finishing my last year of high school I started filling out applications to attend colleges and I remember I was applying to different schools. I think pretty much all of them were Christian colleges and they all have these response prompts to write an essay many of them personal essays. One of the prompts that I was given to one of these colleges asked the question something like this. Uh, If you were to travel back in time could choose any person to encounter, except for Jesus, who would it be and why? What would it be like to encounter that person? How would that person change your life? I don't remember what person I chose for that college essay. The question stuck with me, though. For most famous people in history, Chin Shi Huang, uh Julius Caesar, Shakespeare, Napoleon. Even though we have a lot of written documents, so to speak, we really can't say, can't really know for sure, can we, what it would be like to walk alongside that person to hear from them. We can kind of get a vague idea. But we don't really understand how influential that person could be in our own lives. It got me thinking again recently, that question prompt from that application. What does it look like exactly to encounter Jesus? What would it look like when he comes walking into your life? Could you know what it would be like to have a genuine encounter with Jesus? And not just from the bare pages of history like any of these other famous people in history, but a personal a personal reckoning with Jesus in your life it, to the point where it left you changed forever. How could you know that? How could you know if you had a genuine encounter with Jesus? Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Matthew has proclaimed that Jesus is the promised Messiah, Jesus is the son of David, Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the inheritor of these promises. Now Jesus is also the one who has come to fulfill all righteousness. He's come to lead people out of the wilderness into the promised land. Now John, his ministry is completed. He is leaving the scene and Jesus steps onto the stage. Is he going to live up to all this hype that we've read about already? What will that look like? What would it mean for your life My life, when Jesus comes walking in onto the scene. Well, in our text today, Matthew claims that you can know what a genuine encounter with Jesus looks like in your life. You can know what it's like when he steps onto the stage of your life. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and you want to know what it looks like to have Jesus walk onto the stage of your life, Well, that's what we're about to see here. That's what we have just read about here in Matthew's Gospel. And if you are a Christian and you want to know where you're at in your walk with Jesus, Matthew wants to remind you and show you what it means to be a subject in his kingdom, to have Jesus as your king. So here it is. Let's look at it. Let's take a, a look at Matthew's claims here in this chapter. Looking first at verses 12 through 17, We see that if you've had a genuine encounter, then Jesus calls you into his kingdom. He calls you into his kingdom. Now, we've seen already that Matthew claims Jesus is a king. So far, it's been preparing us for when Jesus comes onto the stage. And now, as we read here in the chapter 4, verse 12, that Jesus, when he hears that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. What's going on here? We don't have the full story of what's happening with John the Baptist here. We're not going to hear about John again and his arrest until chapter 14. But what Matthew is signaling to us is that John's era is ending. John, as that Old Testament prophet preparing the scene for Jesus, he is fading away and a new era of the New Testament of Jesus is beginning. That's the point of Matthew placing this verse right before us in this section to signal a new era has come. Now when I read the text, it looks like though Jesus hears this news about John and for him it's almost like a prompt. Okay, now my ministry is beginning. He hears this and boom, he's off. We don't know very much from Matthew's gospel what Jesus is doing before this, but when he hears about John Boom, he goes and he moves to Galilee. It's actually a very strange start to Jesus' ministry. I mean, Jesus, he starts his ministry. He doesn't make for the religious and political centers of power. Uh, He doesn't move to Jerusalem, where the temple is. He doesn't go towards the Sanhedrin, where a lot of the political power could be found either it says here that Jesus withdrew into Galilee withdrew is could also be translated as retreat in a sense what I think Matthew is communicating to us there is Jesus is removing himself from those places of power that he could have gone to instead he is going to a very unusual place to begin his ministry to Galilee 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 is like the, the, the no place uh, where nobody comes from. It's like, uh, for us Americans, it'd be like in Alaska. It's so far away. Or, or uh, maybe like uh, North Dakota, very remote. Uh, sorry if you're from Minnesota, not, not too far away. But, uh, or for Chinese, I mean, it may be Guizhou province, very remote, hard to get to or maybe Mongolia or Xinjiang, just someplace very far away, very foreign to many people. Galilee, for the Jews, is not only remote, though. Galilee is kind of a hopeless cause. Because in Galilee, there has been a lot of mixture between Jews and Gentiles. And so Jews often viewed those living in Galilee as spiritually lost. They were not pure. So when Jesus withdraws, into Galilee. It seems like he just sort of veers off course. Why would he go there of all places? And yet this is exactly the place where the ministry of the Messiah needs to go. It's not a mistake. That Jesus chooses to go to this desolate, spiritually needy place of Galilee. Because, as Matthew teaches us here, It is to fulfill the prophecy that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 9. I read it earlier, the full thing in our our service. You can put your eyes on it here in verses 15 and 16. Matthew quotes, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What's Matthew doing here? And why does he quote this? Matthew's quoting Isaiah because Isaiah there is speaking to a people preparing for a coming invasion and a coming exile. God's people to whom Isaiah is speaking, they're a people preparing for God's judgment. There are people that have strayed away from God's law, from his, uh, his will for their lives, and repeatedly rebelling against God and his rule. And so God promises that judgment is coming, and it's coming in the form of an earthly kingdom of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to roll down upon Israel and take them captive, invade the land. And the Assyrians were the, they were the superpowers of that day. They're going to come to Israel and take these people into exile, but what you need to understand is that the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, and Galilee, that area, uh, this was sort of the front door of Israel. So when the Assyrians are going to come, these places are going to be the first places to get it. Uh, They're standing in the way. They're sitting ducks. And so when Isaiah speaks here of uh, the way of the sea, this is like a highway a highway that is going to go from Assyria all the way down through Israel into Egypt. And Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee are the first stops on that highway. And so you can imagine God prophesying, telling them judgment is coming. People living in those areas know they're going to be the first ones to get it. You can imagine that they just live in the tyranny of death that is hanging over them, the tyranny of judgment that is to come. They live their whole lives with that looming threat of destruction. That's the darkness here that Isaiah is speaking of. But in the midst of that darkness, Isaiah also holds out hope. Because while the rulers of the world were looming large, God's promise is that another kingdom is at work. That a great light will shine isaiah using that light as a symbol that god's kingdom is not going to be destroyed with that judgment but god is going to send his messiah to establish his kingdom that although things seem really really dark and in despair that there can be hope that one day god's messiah his rule and his reign will be established and when he comes, he will pull his people out from underneath that shadow of darkness. He'll begin to, in fact, roll back the forces of evil that threaten to crush his people. And so, in the midst of darkness, God's people had hope in that Messiah. Although the world around them was grave, Israel lived in the hope and expectation their judgment would be ended, their sin would be forgiven, their enemies crushed and they would together live under the divine rule of their Messiah. So what is Matthew doing here exactly? Evidently, what Matthew is communicating to us and to his readers is that the promised rule and reign of that anointed king has now come in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus meets all of those messianic expectations. What do we have in Jesus? What we have in Jesus is simply this. We now have in Jesus the fulfillment of that promised hope. Hope because God's rule and reign have come in the person of Christ. Hope that your judgment is ended. Hope that your sins are forgiven. Hope because he will roll back the forces of sin and evil And darkness in this world. Hope that you will also dwell with him among God's people. So when the word comes from Jesus, here in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is saying, here it is. It is breaking into the world. And it's breaking into your life. Jesus, when he walks onto the scene in your life, is calling you to enter into that kingdom. And the way to know that hope, the way to realize that hope within your life, Jesus says very clearly is to repent, to repent of your sin, to lay aside your rebellion against God's law and his will To lay aside your personal little kingdom and instead have Jesus sit on the throne of your heart and that you would belong to his kingdom. You know you've encountered Jesus when you're willing to do that. You know that Jesus has personally changed your life when you're willing to lay down your arms of rebellion against him. To say you're sorry and instead surrender your life to him. It's that simple. You realize that you've been on the wrong track in life, and instead you need to get on the right one, and that entails repenting of your sin, and instead trusting in Christ. Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of heaven has broken in. The darkness is gone. You don't have to live under the shadow of death anymore. You don't have to live under that shadow tyranny, so to speak, of God's judgment against you, you can have forgiveness and the hope of life, reconciled hope, reconciled relationship with God today by repenting of sin and bowing before Christ as king. It's here and now, Jesus says. When he walks into your life, Jesus makes that promise reconciliation with you to live as his renewed people in his kingdom that's the first sign of what it means to encounter jesus in a very personal genuine way he calls you into his kingdom and that makes sense then to ask okay well what are the implications for having jesus as my king if i answer that call if i answer that call to enter into his kingdom to bow before him, to repent, that he would sit on the throne of my heart. What are the implications for my life after that, at that point? What does Jesus want from me as my king? That's what he goes on to say here, Matthew, in our text, as he answers that question. The second thing that we can learn of encountering Jesus is that he calls you to a life of discipleship. Not just to enter his kingdom, but to follow his commands, to follow him. To imitate him. I love this passage in verses 18 through 22. There's so much here that we can learn about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Put your eyes on this text again in verses 18 through 22. We have in these verses a little vignette of Jesus calling his first disciples. Interestingly in Matthew, this is about all we get when it comes to Jesus calling disciples. In the other gospels, Uh, Jesus we see calling even more people in Matthew's gospel we're only going to get I believe one more instance of Jesus calling someone that's Levi so it's important that we understand here what's going on Jesus travels to this area the Sea of Galilee he meets two sets of brothers the first set Simon Peter and Andrew Fishing, throwing their nets into the sea, and then James and John. These four men are going to make up four of the twelve apostles. That will become Jesus' teachers and planters of, his, of the early church. What does Jesus demand of these men when he walks into their lives? Interesting what Jesus wants from these men. He says it very plainly in verse 19. Did you see it there? Follow me, he says. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And he repeats the same thing in verse 21. Matthew doesn't give us the full-on repetition, but you get the idea. He also calls to them to follow him. What does Jesus want from these men? What does it look like to enter into the kingdom to have Jesus as your king? Well, it means that you follow him. You become his disciple. You say to him, I'm willing to be trained by you, to receive your teaching, to imitate you, to have intimate fellowship with you, to learn from your ways. That's what it means. But notice it's not just it's not just following him as a disciple I mean Matthew fills in the picture he gives us more details than just that what does it take to be a disciple? why does Jesus single these men out and what we learn here when does Jesus choose these men for their for their self-confidence does Jesus choose these men because of their productivity? Did he choose them because of their success? Because of their prestige? Their intelligence? We don't have any indications in this text Jesus chose these four men because of any of those things. I mean, Matthew's silence on why Jesus chose these men tells us everything. He chose them because it was his gracious invitation to them. There was nothing in them in themselves that made them worthy to become disciples of Jesus. It's it's telling isn't it that Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem and call the most holy of men to be his disciples, the people who think their righteousness is so great before God. Jesus goes to these four fishermen who have nothing to speak of really in the world's eyes. Ordinary men coming from a nowhere place with no reputation. That's who Jesus called. Jesus isn't like other rabbis whose students would go to that rabbi and apply to become the student of the rabbi. Jesus is different as a rabbi and king. He seeks his disciples out. He does the seeking and calling. And what we see, what we learn, is that Jesus' invitation to follow him isn't based on anything inherent in us. It's because of his electing grace. It's Jesus's divine initiative to reach out to these men and call them to be his disciples. But that's not all that we learn here, about Jesus calling people to a life of fellowship. Did you notice here how all four men respond to this call? I mean, maybe you've read this passage before and you've missed it, But Matthew doesn't want you to miss it, so he repeats it twice. How do these men respond to Jesus' call? Verse 20, immediately it says, they left their nets and followed him. And then he repeats it so so you don't miss it. Verse 22 with James and John, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. When Jesus intervenes in someone's life with a gracious call to discipleship, the response is to be immediate, instant, instantaneous. Discipleship without delay. That's what it's like living under the sovereign rule and reign of the anointed king. He has authority over my life and I respond to that authority quickly and completely and even cheerfully. Not only that, in this response to Jesus' call, notice how all four men, they leave something behind. Their lives change fundamentally at this point. Did you see this? Peter and Andrew, verse 20, they leave behind their nets. Their nets were their livelihood. They were fishermen. and It defined who they were. It was their career. Same for James and John. Text says they leave behind their boat. You could imagine at that time, hundreds of years ago, their boat was a significant investment for their fishing industry. And not only their boat, who else do they leave? James and John even leave their father behind. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus here. To become his disciple, that doesn't mean you need to be negligent in your job. That doesn't mean you have to be irresponsible towards your family unnecessarily disown them. That's not what he's saying here. But simply calling his disciples to set aside anything that would hinder their allegiance to him. Placing him as the number one priority above all other things. That's the point. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he reorders priorities into someone's life. And if necessary, even causes them to break their past loyalties so that he would be king above all interestingly one more thing i want to point out here about when jesus calls these men to follow them is that he not only calls them to leave behind something but he replaces their career he says i will make you fishers of men right Now we do know, let me point out here, that there is something unique about Jesus calling these four men. We know there is a special task that these men have. They will be apostles of the church. Jesus doesn't call every single one of us to leave beside our full-time jobs to serve him in full-time ministry, but he does here with these four men. And when he does, he not just calls them, to leave something, but he promises to equip them for something. That Jesus gives them special training that he will not just call them, but fully fund them, so to speak, for that ministry. There's something unique here about these men being called, but isn't it the case that when Jesus calls any one of us into his kingdom, that he will equip us to follow him, and he calls us to participate in his kingdom. And you don't have to be an apostle to participate in God's kingdom. We might not all be called to full-time gospel ministry, but we are called to full-time discipleship. Evidently, what Matthew, the writer, is giving you today is a template for a life of discipleship, a life of living under the rule and reign of King Jesus. If you want to know what it's like to have a genuine encounter with Jesus, calls you into his kingdom. He also calls you to be a disciple. What that means for your life then is that there can be no higher priority than Christ as King. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you hear him say, follow me, be my disciple, walk with me, go where I go, imitate me, you need to know. Your response to him is of paramount importance. You don't delay. You're also to know that there will be a cost. There will be a cost. Jesus says later, count the cost of being a disciple with him. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To be his disciple means it will cost you something. That cost will be different for each person. A break with the past life is going to look different for each person, but it will happen if you are to be his disciple. And you can be sure of this. When you're called as Jesus' disciple you will experience a radical reorientation of your priorities. Your allegiance belongs to Jesus. Submission to his teachings is what will direct your decision-making. Imitating his ways will be your desire in life. Setting aside anything that hinders your allegiance to him is going to be what steers your life. What does Jesus want from you in his rule, in his reign, in your life? What does he want if you're going to be a loyal kingdom, a loyal citizen of his kingdom? It's not your popularity. It's not your success. It's nothing that you bring on your own. He wants you to follow him. That's the second thing that we see in this passage. Matthew is teaching us, when you encounter Jesus, when you have a genuine personal relationship with him. There's a third and final thing that I believe Matthew is claiming here, pointing us to when Jesus does walk on the scene into people's lives, And that is that Jesus promises restoration. I don't know if you caught this here in the text in verses 23 through 25. The wholeness that Jesus proclaims, that he teaches and that he provides. When Jesus comes into someone's life, he comes teaching and proclaiming, displaying, manifesting the nature of his kingdom and the benefits of his kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing here in verses 23 through 25. Put your eyes on that again. It says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is a summary statement that we have here in Matthew. What Matthew is doing for you here is He's encapsulating for you. He is summarizing in just a few words what Jesus' entire ministry is going to be look like, is going to look like. If you could summarize Jesus' ministry in two words, from these verses, word and deed. Jesus has come to teach and preach the gospel, and Jesus has come to display it through his miraculous works, His merciful deeds. So that's what Jesus shows us here. He shows us through his word and deeds what the kingdom is like. The gospel, it says here, the gospel of the kingdom. We know Jesus is a king. That's what Matthew has been saying and reminding us over and over up to this point. Jesus comes from the son of David. He is of royal lineage. There have been even people traveling great distances, these wise men who have bowed down before him and said, where is the king of the Jews that we might worship him? Jesus is a king. He's proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. But what does that mean? What is the nature of the kingdom? The word gospel, good news, goes all the way back at least to 9 B.C. We know, we have records, we have inscriptions of Roman officials writing gospel, good news. To officials writing back in 9 B.C., they wrote gospel to proclaim, to announce, the birth and the ascension to the throne of Augustus Caesar. The gospel, according to that official, the one writing it, was that a new ruler had ascended. There was another. There's good news that a Savior had come to bring peace. The writer in 9 BC was gospeling that this new ruler would bring an end to war, that there was hope, that there would be peace. He wrote these words, The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful messages which have gone forth because of him. That a a new era had dawned in the reign of Augustus. That was the good news to that writer. That was the gospel that a significant regime change had taken place. That's what the word gospel is used for in the ancient world, to signify the old order has passed away, the new has come. At the time Matthew gives us his gospel of Jesus, then, he is claiming nothing less for Jesus. The good news that Jesus is proclaiming is that in Jesus, the previous rulers of the world have been supplanted Jesus has brought a new world order what Jesus is proclaiming then in these words when he comes teaching and preaching is that there is an inbreaking of God's kingdom in your life today that God's rule has intervened in a world gone wrong A new era has dawned. The kingdom of this world is at an end. The kingdom of heaven has come. Relief has arrived. Christ is repelling all of the effects of sin. The horrific effects of earthly rule are being rolled back. And Jesus is instilling his kingdom. In other words, heaven has come down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. That which is of heaven. Has come down in the rule and reign of Jesus. God himself has come down. In Jesus. To break in his rule. And his rule is being exercised. Through reconciliation to God. Repenting of sin and restoring that relationship. But also a restoration in other ways that's the nature of the kingdom the nature of the kingdom is to bring reconciliation to God and restoration that gets at the benefits of being under God's rule in his kingdom what are the benefits I could speak to you of benefits of God's kingdom related to God's judgment Being a citizen of God's kingdom, the judgment of God no longer rules over your head. I could speak about the condemnation against sin that we stand under, that being done away with. But let me speak about a flip side to God's beneficial rule. The flip side of having Jesus as your king is right here in verses 23 and 24. What are the benefits of having Christ as your king? Well, you get a savior who makes you whole again. You get a spiritual doctor. Jesus sees people who are afflicted. The word is used, I think, twice. I believe to emphasize affliction. Jesus sees people who are suffering. Jesus sees people who are sick and debilitated. He sees people who are even oppressed by spiritual forces. Matthew is shouting at you to see just how absolute Jesus is rule and reign is, how absolute his good news is because he did something about all these people's suffering. What we have on display here in verses 23 through 25 is a taste of what's to come in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Has brought the kingdom of heaven down to earth, as it were, by restoring people who have been so damaged by sin in this fallen world. Just notice this, to drive home his point of how absolute Jesus' reign here, Matthew doesn't leave out pretty much any type of infirmity, any type of suffering that people could go through. Jesus heals, he makes it clear here, every kind of disease, every affliction, they brought him all the sick and he healed them. Jesus, or Matthew even wants to point out to you that the paralytics come to Jesus to be healed because in the first century A.D. there is absolutely no known cure for paralysis. But it's not a problem for Jesus. Matthew also tells you that they bring to Jesus the demon oppressed to declare to you that Jesus is not only healing physical illnesses, he's not only restoring people physically, but he's restoring people spiritually. Jesus gave them a wholeness of life, in other words, that they had never known before. Jesus is fully prepared to meet any need. Sin has tainted every single corner of the world. But what Matthew is claiming here is that Jesus' restoring work is so powerful that there's no corner that it leaves unpainted. It can reach into every single crevice of our lives. Matthew puts Jesus' healing ministry in absolute and total language because he's describing something of absolute importance. He shows why Jesus came to once and for all take away sins from his own people to remove the universal evils that have, that have plagued this world by sin. He is showing that the kingdom of heaven is going to advance into every area of life and to shine into every dark corner of sin. Jesus' healings themselves are a certain kind of gospel proclamation, a sign that the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Friends, there's not, a, there's not a person in this world, it's not someone alive today who does not go through this life hurt and pained in some way. Every single one of us is carrying around some type of burden, some type of past, some type of problem. And When Jesus walks into your life, when he brings you into his kingdom and he's your king when you answer that call to be his disciple to follow him to learn from him to take his yoke upon you he also promises you that one day you will be made whole in his kingdom there will be no affliction of sin Jesus has not come to condemn you. He has come to restore you. He's come to restore you in your relationship to God. He's come to make you whole again as a person completely free from sin. Living in perfect relationship with him. he sees your suffering and he did something about it and he is doing something about it. When Jesus walks into your life, you may have to wait a while to get there, but he promises that you will experience something like the bodily restoration that these people have experienced, only even greater. That You will one day have a body that cannot be corrupted. A body and soul completely free of sin. You will be made whole. You might not have it today, but the promise is given to you. It is guaranteed to you. God has bound himself by his promise to make you whole again. That's what you get when Jesus walks into your life when you answer that call to enter his kingdom when you commit your life to being his disciple. You get the nature of the kingdom now the breaking into this world you get the promise of restoration in the life to come. Evidently when Jesus performed these miracles, it caused quite a sensation, as you can imagine. Matthew says in verse 25 Great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. I bet they did. To see that kind of healing in people's lives. If you were to pull up a map of the region just to pinpoint where Jesus was, you would see that Matthew is describing the whole entire region around where Jesus was ministering, to make the point that his influence, his name, his fame, was spreading everywhere, pervading. Many people responding to Jesus' ministry as we'll learn about in the coming chapters and no doubt, no doubt many of these people were attracted to Jesus simply because of the phenomenon, right? Could you imagine if somebody today had a fraction of the amount of healing uh, ability that Jesus has here. You could imagine the sensation that it would cause. Many of these people, no doubt, Matthew's describing, are just curiosity seekers. Uh, They're not true disciples, although they are following Jesus. They just don't want to miss out on a good show. I pray you are not one of them. I pray you don't come to Jesus for a good show. I hope you're at least curious if you don't already know Jesus, if you're not his disciple. That's good. But my prayer is that you'd be so much more than a curiosity seeker. I invite you today not just to be a curiosity seeker when it comes to Jesus, I call on you to reorder your life to follow Jesus. I implore you to make decisions in your life that would be that of a disciple of Christ. I plead with you to repent of your sin and enter into Christ's kingdom. If you do follow him as a disciple, my prayer for you, my prayer for all of us is that we would not just enter into his kingdom then, but we would participate in his kingdom. My prayer for us as disciples here at Christ Covenant Church, our vision should be, our prayer should be, is that we be a community of disciples who proclaim this good news of the kingdom. Reconciliation with God, promised restoration in the kingdom of heaven. My prayer for us as disciples at Christ Covenant Church is that we would be a community of Christ followers known by our devotion to Christ above all things. And by doing that, we would even be a community who could raise up fishers of men, people who are proclaiming the gospel to bring more people into the kingdom of God. My prayer is that this message would compete with the world's message around us, that our message of hope would be a bright light shining in despair in in the midst of darkness, that peace with God is possible, that God's pledge to restore is guaranteed. This is all we have, friends. This is all we have as Christ Covenant Church. All we have is Jesus and his gospel. I can't offer you anything else than that. So have you genuinely encountered him? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word.